Welcome, friends, to Plague Sunday number three, where we keep you rolling with all plagues all the time. And this week, we are going to start where we often do by asking, what did we learn last week? Well, last week, we looked at the plagues of frogs, gnats, and flies. And we saw that the plagues are a showdown between the one true God and Pharaoh, a man who was considered to be a God on earth. So the plagues are basically a war of wills between these two forces. And God wants Pharaoh to let the Hebrew people go. And Pharaoh does not want to do that. So in order to uh, put some pressure on Pharaoh and change his mind, God sent these plagues. And the first one was the plague of blood, where the waters of the Nile and even the water stored in jugs throughout Egypt was turned to blood. The Bible says blood was everywhere. You're going to get used to that word everywhere, because that's a common, a common word throughout the plagues. Pharaoh responded by asking his magicians to duplicate the feet, which in much smaller fashion they did. Pharaoh was not impressed by God and refused to let the people go. Now let's pause for a second here because here is the objective of uh, the sermon this morning. The, there are ten plagues altogether, and what we see in them is that there are patterns. There are patterns of what God does. There are patterns of what um, Pharaoh and his people do. So this week, I want us to pay attention to that. I want us to pay attention to the cycles that we see going on uh, between God and Pharaoh. So that was the first plague. Next was the plague of frogs. Frogs were everywhere. Uh, again, Pharaoh asked his magicians to match, and they were successful in bringing twice the number of frogs to Egypt. However, they could not make any of the frogs go away. So Pharaoh, in what seems to be a humbling moment, goes and asks Moses to ask God to take the frogs away. And if they take the frogs away, then they can maybe go worship God. So God, or Moses asks God, God says, well, if you think that's a good deal. And so God uh, had all of those frogs die. The first case of mass frogicide in <laughs> In written literature um, and even though Egypt stank of dead frogs uh, just like it stank from blood it now stinks of blood and dead frogs there was some relief and because there was some relief Pharaoh decided well no you don't get to go which led us into the time of gnats um, all of the all of the dust in Egypt was turned to gnats, which is gnasty. You're welcome for that. You're welcome. I know. I know. I don't know how I come up with them every week, but it just happens. Uh, the plague came without warning or reasoning with Pharaoh, and it was at this point that Pharaoh's magicians found themselves helpless. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't bring up more gnats. They couldn't make gnats go away. And so they suggested to Pharaoh that, you know... These things might be happening because this God is real. Maybe. Maybe that is the case. And um, Pharaoh responded to their suggestion by not relenting in any way, shape, or form, which led to the plague of flies. They were everywhere. They even covered the ground. 
You could go fly skiing, you know, if you wanted to, uh, throughout all those flies. And Pharaoh again asked Moses to ask God to make it stop in exchange for letting the Hebrew people go and worship God. And Moses complied. And all the, fr- the flies, they died. And after they died, there was some relief. And Pharaoh changed his mind and said, no, you can't go. So we've been, long at, uh, we've been at this long enough now to see some patterns. So what are the patterns that we see? Uh, well, number one, Moses approaches uh, Pharaoh and asks for uh, the Hebrew people to be let go. This doesn't happen every time, but that is the basis for this conflict, that God wants the people to go and Pharaoh does not want them to. When Pharaoh says no, God sends a plague. And sometimes he gives Pharaoh the choice to let the people go and sometimes he does not. In other words, sometimes Pharaoh is allowed to decide before the plague whether he wants to free the Hebrew people and other times he's not. Regardless, Pharaoh at all times has the power to let the Hebrew people go. He can end this whenever he wants to. The next trend we see is that once the plague happens, Pharaoh tries to duplicate the plague. Um, so he calls upon his wise men and sorcerers and magicians who practice the secret arts. And the thing that we note here is that even when the magicians have some level of success, that what they're doing does not match what God is doing or what God is able to do. But every time the act was duplicated in some way, Pharaoh's refuse to relent it's this it's this stage one of saying um is this god really a god or can other people do this too and every time other people can do something like it pharaoh decides that god is not real so after he tries to duplicate the plague god sends more plagues and now it shifts a little bit once his magicians realized that they were outmatched they suggested that Pharaoh needed to relent, and what Pharaoh did instead was not great. And here's where it starts to get weird, and it gets more, I mean, it's all weird, let's be honest, but where it gets really weird in, in Pharaoh's mind. We, we've seen now that, with, particularly with the gnats, that, that Pharaoh admits that he needed God's help in order for this to go away. So Moses would pray, the plague would end, God would stop it, and things got marginally better. And here's the crazy thing. Imagine, if you would, that this is how normal life is in this room. Everything's relatively clean, bright, you know, we're comfortable, right? Now imagine that the whole room was about ankle deep in frogs. Just, just use your imagination here for a moment. Okay, that's pretty bad, right? It's pretty bad. And so you realize you can't do anything about it, so you pray to God, and God makes all the frogs die. Okay? And you decide, you know what? These dead frogs aren't so bad. Right? This is what we see happening, which I think, as we said last week, is not only true of Pharaoh, it's true of us too. We learn to live with a lot of bad things, with a lot of things that maybe we don't have to because we don't want to give control of our lives to God. We'd rather live with dead frogs than acknowledge that he is who he is. 
So this pattern repeats itself in various forms throughout the story. Now, from our side as readers, we think that each plague should be enough to prove that God is God, right? I mean, after all, these things are unnatural. They're, they're definitely outside the realm of human power, but Pharaoh will not see it. And, and God can show himself in a lot of different ways. He can show his power over many different things, which in fact he does. But just because he can show that he is God, it does not mean that Pharaoh will see it and understand it. What is Pharaoh concerned about? He wants to have the power to control, to be the one who is in charge, and he will not give it up through even all of these awful things. And, and again, the reason why this matters is that we can blame God for using harsh measures to deal with the Egyptians, but there is another force at play, which, as we said last week, in a crazy sort of way, is nearly equal to the power of God. And that is our will, our pride, our, des our desire to deny him. We can be shown lots of things. Even if God came and did good, you know, all these good things and gave all these blessings, which in fact he did, not necessarily in this story, but he does do that and people still don't see who he is. But we cannot forget that the plagues serve a very important uh, purpose. Because of all these dynamics, God needs to show the world that he is who he says he is. And it's for two very important reasons. Number one, it's so that Pharaoh will let his people go. But number two, he's going to ask the Hebrew people to follow him out into the wilderness. And he needs them to understand just as much as he needs Pharaoh to understand that he is God and that he is capable of doing whatever is necessary when they go and they follow him. So let's take a break for a moment from all the plague talk, and let's talk a little bit more about Egypt, specifically the Egyptian gods. I don't know if any of you have uh, done any sort of study on, you know, other, other gods from different cultures. You know, there's Greek gods, there's Roman gods, and there uh, were, of course, Egyptian gods. Egyptian, uh, Egypt had one of the largest and most complex pantheons of gods of any civilization in the ancient world. Um, over the course of Egyptian, uh, okay, I need to slow down again because I'm doing what I was doing last week. Debbie, knock it off. Um, over the course of Egyptian history, hundreds of gods and goddesses were worshipped. And because there were so many, it was hard to pin down what each god actually did. So most gods had a principal association for example, with the sun or with the underworld and form. But these could change over time as God rose and f as these gods rose and fell in importance and evolved in ways that corresponded to developments in the Egyptian world. For example, in a time of famine, which god would rise to the most importance? The god of agriculture, of crops, the god who, who makes things grow would come uh, up to more importance at that time. So get this, there were roughly 56 major gods um, in the hundreds of more minor deities and also in the hundreds 
of more lesser known deities. So even there, there's all these levels sort of coming down. And there was a god for just about everything. Here are some examples. Uh, the god Bat was the cow goddess. Uh, the god Hapi was the god of the Nile flood cycle. So the Nile would flood uh, on a regular cycle, and that would send water out. And basically, while it was bad, the flooding was, it would uh, make the ground more rich in those areas. And so they actually had a god to acknowledge that. Uh, there's also Heket, the frog goddess, said to protect women in childbirth. Uh, where was she? You know what I mean? Uh, and then my personal favorite, Gengen Wur, a celestial go goose god, I'm sorry, who guarded the celestial egg containing the life force. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. But, but this one's a goose. Um, so added to all of these gods is, of course, Pharaoh, the human representation of deity within Egypt. Now, here's something we need to note, okay? When we look at these plagues, it's not a one-to-one -one matchup as if God in each plague is disproving the existence of an Egyptian god. Some of them do line up that way, um, but that's not really the point of all of these things. Um, for example, you know, there's not a god of flies, but there is a god of chaos, which you could argue most of this centers around chaos. It would be sort of a fun example for us to look at if God was, you know, specifically like disproving specific gods, like take that, Lord of the Flies, right? And, and all these different things. But, but he's not doing that. And here's why it's important that he's not. God has better things to do than disprove fake gods. You know what I'm saying? He has better things to do than that. And when we think about it, though, that's exactly what he was doing. He was, he was above giving time to defeat these made-up gods. But here's what's interesting about this. We know that all these gods existed. We know that the Egyptian people worshipped these gods in various seasons. So when the Nile turns to blood, what most likely did they do? Worship their gods, asking their gods to change the situation. Did that work? No. When the frogs come, what did they do? They pray to their gods, and then their gods give them relief. No. Well, and, and so here's the interesting thing. We don't know and often don't consider what the common Egyptian citizen was experiencing during this time. My only guess is that on some level, the people had to be wondering a couple of things. Number one, which God had they offended that this was happening? And number two, why isn't this God responding to their offerings and their prayers and their cries? And what that, where that ends up, because even Pharaoh ends up helpless, is that these Egyptian people who had worshipped all these gods had nothing, no one, to cry out to to help them. 
and they're seeing the gods of their land fail over and over and over and over again. So think about what that does to the psyche of the common person. When you're seeing these huge disasters happen around you, and you don't have any explanation for what's going on. Now, we're going to take a really fast tour here uh, through plagues 5 through 9. That's right. This is, this is a drive-by look at plagues 5 through 9 because I don't want to preach the most depressing <laughs> series ever by going, by going one by one. So, the next, uh, the next one that pops up is the plague of the livestock. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 9. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get them up on the app this week, so uh, I apologize for that, but we'll get them up later. So Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died, yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let his people go. Okay, so we see the same behavioral pattern, right? God demands something, Pharaoh says no, he sends the plague, uh, and Pharaoh does not relent. Um, Now, the plagues that we've seen so far have been what I'm going to call, for the sake of this lesson, cosmetic plagues. You know, like they're bad, but you can get through it. I don't want to experience them and try to get through it, but, you know, nothing is necessarily dying. Although, uh, the Bible does say that in the plague of flies, the land was destroyed. Now, this one is a huge blow to the Egyptian people. This is how they sustained life. They ate the animals, they used them uh, for whatever they did around uh, you know, their farms and life. This was a huge thing. And just think about the logistics of this. You have all these animals and they get sick all at once and die. What do you then have to do? Well, number one, you have to take as much meat as you can from them before it all goes bad. I don't know how much you could get through, but you have to try to salvage that. And then you're still left with a bunch of dead animals, which you have to burn or get rid of in some way. So the land stinks of blood, dead frogs, and dead animals. And at this point, when all these animals die, the people of Egypt have to be like, what is going on? (laughs) Like, this this is terrible. The loss is tremendous. And Pharaoh decides what? Nope. 
even though he saw that all of the Israelite animals were okay, proving that God has the power and is behind this, he refuses. Crazy, right? He is destroying the lives of his people, step by step. And if they weren't mad at him before, they're going to be mad now because the next plague is the plague of boils. Yeah. From uh, verses 10 through 12, uh, God had given Moses these commands uh, to do these things. So, uh, verse 10, so they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Okay, he gives everybody boils, and they are not just boils. They are festering boils, which means it's not like, oh, there's a spot. It's like, oops, excuse me, stand. It's not like there's just one spot. It's all of these sores are like open and gross, like they're already infected. That is disgusting, uh, number one. It's also really painful, and this included everyone, uh, not the Israelites, but included everyone, uh, including Pharaoh. And they were so painful, this is, this is a good note for us here, that the magicians couldn't stand. They, they couldn't stand before Moses and Aaron. And we would think this would be enough for Moses to relent, but he doesn't. And why doesn't he? Because it says this time that God hardened his heart. More on that in a moment. The next plague, I know, it's just the hits keep coming, is the plague of hail uh, from Exodus 9, 22 through 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, um, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. Okay, you might on the surface look at a plague of hail as a relief from the boils, but that's not actually the case, because how hard is it hailing? Unimaginably hard. It is stripping trees. And if an animal, remember the livestock was killed, so there are more animals, but if the animals are out there, what's going to happen to them? They will die. That's how hard it's hailing. If people are out there, what will happen to them? Yeah, it's, it's bad. And the land was already destroyed, right, by, by the flies, but now it's like doubled up. This is, this is killing basically what's left. And Pharaoh does not relent. 
But something interesting happens during this plague that we have not seen before, and this is in verses 27 through 28. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Wow! Where'd that come from? And, and this is an important statement on behalf of Pharaoh, because he does two things. Number one, what does he recognize? That God is God. And two, that he has sinned against this God. And notice what he calls him. The Lord. So, somehow through this hail, like the light has shone through, right? He seems to actually get it and to understand what is going on. He acknowledged that he was in the wrong. And so, Moses prayed for relief, and the hail stopped. And guess what happened when the hail stopped? Which leads us to locusts. I don't know if you've ever seen a locust. Um, it's a very large grasshopper would be the, the best way to describe it. Let's look at verses uh, in chapter 10, verses 13 through 20. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit of the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Okay, another devastating plague. So let's ask ourselves the question, in what condition is Egypt in at this point? It's, yeah. There's almost no way, I think, for us to wrap our minds around it, around this sort of systematic dismantling of Egypt. The land was destroyed and wrecked. And maybe it makes us wonder, well, how can it be more wrecked than it was? Well, it, it found everything green. These were like green-seeking missiles, right? And again, though, we find in verse 20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. So even though Pharaoh went and asked God for help and admitted that this was terrible, his heart was hard and he would not let them go. Okay? Keep that in mind. Lastly, the plague of darkness. <clears throat> Verses 21 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. 
Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Okay. Does this technically hurt anyone? Not necessarily. I mean, it's, it's bad, like three days in complete darkness. And what's interesting about how it's described, it's that it's, it's like the, the darkness almost has an essence, a being, that, it is undeni- that there's nothing you can do about it. Even if they were to light fires and lamps in their homes, there would still be darkness. That's the kind of darkness that uh, the Bible is talking about. But here's something else that's interesting. Uh, This one, more than any other, was symbolic while also uh, being a demonstration of God's great power. Um, Because when the land was dark, that means they literally could not see what? The sun. And who is one of the greatest Egyptian gods? It's Ra, the god of the sun. He was the god of the sun, the god of order, the god of kings, and the god of the sky. This is the dude. And in this one plague, what has God effectively done? There is nothing you can do about this. So, what do we see happening through the accumulation of these plagues? Well, number one, Egypt, Egypt is destroyed. There, it's just a wreck, a shell of itself by the time all this is done. How can they possibly sustain life after this? I mean, the whole place is starting at zero. And you know what's kind of funny, in a weird way, is that what a change this is from the time where Egypt was the most prosperous land on earth while the rest of the world was in famine. And why did they end up having enough food? Because they listened to who? To Joseph, who was listening to who? God. We almost have those two stories here telling what happens when you listen to God and what happens when you deny God over and over and over and over again. Um, There's two more things that I want us to note. Um, And that is the condition of Pharaoh's heart through this process. So let's look at this really quick. There we go. Go ahead and bring up the first one, Jed. So uh, we're going to track it here. So when the Nile was turned to blood, uh, Pharaoh's heart became hard. When we had the plague of frogs, he hardened his own heart. When we have gnats, his heart was hard. When we have flies, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The plague of livestock, his heart was unyielding. Boils, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Hail, he and his officials hardened their hearts. Locusts, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And darkness, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And by the way, with the plague of darkness, uh, Pharaoh also threatened to kill Moses the next time he saw him. Like, don't show your face here again or you're done. Pharaoh hardened his heart five times before God played a role in the condition of his heart. Does this mean that at any point Pharaoh could not choose otherwise? I don't think it does for this reason. Pharaoh was always given the choice of what to do. 
But Bryce, it says God hardened his heart. Right, and we've talked about this before, um, but let's just hit on it briefly again. What does it mean that God hardened his heart? Does it mean that God did not allow Pharaoh to make a different choice so that the people would continue to suffer? Is that what it means? Well, on the surface, that's what it looks like, right? That's what it means. Um, Let's think about it more of this way. When God showed up on the scene to talk to Pharaoh, what was the condition of Pharaoh's heart? Was he open or closed to God? He was closed. The first plague happens, is he open or closed? Through the first five, his heart is closed of his own doing. Right? When we get to the boils, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, was Pharaoh's heart already hard? Yes. So what did God effectively do? He allowed the state of his heart to remain what it was. Because Pharaoh has already shown that he's not going to change his mind. And that's why the plague of hail is important and gives us some context to the whole idea of God hardening his heart. Because God hardened his heart with the boils, and then when hail happens, who was responsible for hardening his heart? He was. So even after all these major destructive things, he is still the owner of a hard heart. And that is not changing throughout this story. Do we see his, repons- his responses change? Yes, he went from dismissive to grudgingly needing help to acknowledging God, to acknowledging sin. But here's what we see, okay? Here's what it is. The hardening always outweighs whatever else is going on. It is the barrier that will not be breached. And we know what's coming, right? Something to give us some more context. Even when... Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. Once they're out of town, what does he do? The plagues have stopped, and he changes his mind. And he chases them, destroying his army in the process. What does that tell us about Pharaoh? He is a walking hard heart. He is a prideful man. He is someone that will not bend. And we know that everything is coming to a head. And ultimately, that there is only one outcome to this story. Pharaoh has to give in. He has to. He cannot go on and on and on and on with God because he will lose every time. And what else can God take from the land at this point? The land is destroyed. The people are wrecked. And so next week, we're going to look at one of the hardest to swallow plagues, um, which raise a lot of questions for us. And, but as we look at this, we have to see that the price, the, the price to pay for Pharaoh's pride is unimaginable. It's unimaginable. 
So what do we do with all this information? Well, today, like I said, was kind of a little journey through the hard times in Egypt. Um, but there are some things I think we can take from this. Number one, God is good and faithful to his people. Is God bad to those who are not his people? Not necessarily, okay? We see God being good to other people. In fact, when God blessed Moses, what did he, or blessed Abraham, what did he tell Abraham he was supposed to be? A blessing to the nations, all right? So God does bless other people. What's the problem here? His people are being oppressed. They're being held down, and God himself is being refused. And something that we miss in all of this is the amount of effort that God is going to to change Pharaoh's mind. I mean, is it hard for God to do these things? No. But could he have made it happen, something so devastating, immediately? Could he have struck Pharaoh dead? None of those things happen. Because throughout this whole process, God is systematically breaking down who Pharaoh thinks he is. And Pharaoh, again, can choose at any point to give in, to relent, and he won't. And, you know, that hits kind of hard for me. <laughs> because we are, we can be very similar to that, right? And it doesn't take a whole lot of thinking to think about the things that we hold back and refuse to let go of. And, you know, we have our reasons, We've thought about it, but it just doesn't seem like the thing we want to do. But this tells us a story, which is ultimately we can fight God all we want. We can hold on to the bitter end, but what is the end result going to be? God is going to still be God, and we will continue to not be God. When we think about the plague that's coming up next, the plague of the firstborn, the great cost that all of this has taken, it's hard for us to imagine this being a part of God's plan. However, God knows exactly what all of this feels like. He knows what the cost is is when we think about God's relationship with his creation, what have they done? They have denied him. They have destroyed his world. They're at war with one another. They made up all these other gods. God has been through his own set of plagues with humanity. And in an incredible reversal, which is also hard for us to wrap our minds around, God also knows what it's like to sacrifice his son on the road to salvation. He knows what it's like to give up. And in stark comparison to Pharaoh, where Pharaoh refuses to relent over and over again, we are in relationship with a God who not only, while staying true to himself, works with us, <laughs> along the way. He not only does that, but he also made it possible for us to have life with him. 
It's crazy, isn't it? That this is who God is and what he has done.